Hello, and welcome. This week, we are going to begin a three-week study of the book of Psalms, and we will be featuring the Psalms discussed in Come Follow Me for the dates August 8th through 14th. In addition to looking at the themes described in that chapter, I also want to answer four key questions. Number one, what are the Psalms? Number two, did the Psalms serve a function in ancient temple worship? Number three, how can I use the Psalms to draw closer to God? And number four, what do the Psalms teach me about Christ? So we're going to begin by answering the question, what are the Psalms? The book of Psalms is a collection of songs and poetry that became the hymn book of Israel and the early church. A quick perusal of the scripture index in the LDS hymnal will show that many of the Psalms made their way into the hymns of the Latter-day Saints as well. Seventy-three of the Psalms are ascribed to King David. Since he was the principal author and the one we know most about, it was customary to refer to all of the Psalms as the Psalms of David. Other significant authors include Asaph, who wrote 12 songs. Asaph is mentioned in 1 Chronicles 6 as one of the musicians appointed by David to supply music for worship in the house of the Lord. Eleven psalms are also attributed to the sons of Korah, a group of musicians from the tribe of Levi. Solomon wrote two psalms, and Moses wrote one. Scholars debate whether these latter authors actually wrote the psalms attributed to them. They may have been written at a later time and attributed in the same way that we might dedicate a song or even a poem to an ancestor or historic figure. Regardless of authorship, both the Jewish community and the early church regarded the Psalms as divinely inspired and included them in the canon of scripture. This book is more than just a collection of songs and poetry. These songs are also didactic in that they teach us about God's love for us. They teach us about worship and repentance. They also teach us a lot about the Savior who would come and assume the throne of his ancestor David. The Psalms are cited 116 times in the New Testament. Many of the Psalms prefigure the work of Christ by examining the life of King David. Psalm 22 in particular takes a profound look at the suffering and death of the Messiah. It describes the characteristics of the crucifixion hundreds of years before the crucifixion was even invented. Another beautiful feature of the Psalms is that they address almost every kind of situation a person can find themselves in. The psalmists express depression, repentance, confession, persecution, success, failure, suffering, and worship. David had an incredible life, the highest of highs and the lowest of lows, and he wrote about how the Lord helped him through those times. As you read the Psalms, it is easy to identify with David and to receive hope by seeing the hope that he had in the Lord. As you read the Psalms, you notice that they may have some subtitles and strange words attached to them. According to the LDS Bible Dictionary, subtitles were added to the Psalms, but it is an open question to whether these are as old as the words to which they are attached. They mainly refer to the manner in which the words were to be sung or accompanied. Some psalms were to be accompanied by stringed instruments, others by wind instruments. While such titles as set to alamoth or set to shemanif seem to imply that there was singing in parts, 
Some of the titles appear to be to be intended to indicate the character of the psalm, as in giving instruction or worship. Others may relate either to the melody or the instrument used in the performance. Other titles are also probably the names of tunes well known at the time to which the psalms were appointed or to be sung. Another important word frequently found in the psalms is the word selah. We don't know exactly what that word means, but most scholars argue that it was telling the performers to pause here, much like a rest features in modern music. If this understanding is correct, it does add a deeper meaning to some of the psalms we'll be looking at today. It should be noted that the poetic form of the psalms is lost in translation. The introduction to this section in Come Follow Me notes the following. Hebrew poetry in the Old Testament is used, isn't based on rhyme, like some other kinds of poetry. And although rhythm, wordplay, and repetition of sounds are common features of ancient Hebrew poetry, they are typically lost in translation. One feature you will notice, however, is the repetition of thoughts or ideas, also called parallelism. The 29th Psalm has many parallel lines. Here's an example. In verse 4. It says, the voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. That repetition and parallelism is an expression of Hebrew poetry. The meter of Hebrew poetry is based on the rhythm of the words in the original Hebrew. It does not have the rigid meter that most Western poetry has today. LDS scholars Sean and J. Arden Hopkin, in their paper, The Psalms Sung, The Power of Music in Sacred Worship, identify seven different types or categories of psalms. Number one, psalms of lament or prayer. These likely arose from times of national or personal crisis when the community gathered in order to offer sacrifice and pray for deliverance. Number two, psalms of praise. These psalms often begin with the command or call to Israel to gather as a community and praise the Lord. Number three, Psalms of Thanksgiving. These psalms reflect the gratitude of an individual or community after they have been delivered from a trial by God. Number four, royal psalms. These psalms celebrated important events in the lives of royalty, which for Christian readers often reflected the royal life and reign of the Messiah. Number five, songs of Zion. These psalms celebrate the location of the temple at Mount Zion. They rejoice that the Lord's presence is there and express a longing to visit the temple. These could also have acted as a call to worship. Number six, liturgies. These psalms are clearly designed for antiphonal dialogue in a way that worshipers could respond to the call of a priest or the Levites could perform a song in a call and response fashion. In other words, the priest would sing one line and the congregation would sing the second line in response. And that would strengthen the message of the psalm. And the seventh version of psalms, or category rather, is wisdom and Torah psalms. These psalms seem to function differently than the others, not serving as a prayerful petition to God, but rather discussing religious truths and providing advice on how to successfully live a godly life, similar to the advice found in Proverbs or Ecclesiastes. Now we're going to look at the second question in our list here, and that is, did the psalms serve a function in ancient temple worship? 
The Hopkins argue that many of the Psalms were connected to the worship in the Temple of Solomon, or later in the second temple that was built after the Jewish return from exile. They point to the prominence of singing and dancing when David brought the ark back to the tabernacle in 1 Chronicles 15. We also see music featured in the dedication of Solomon's temple and the coming of the glory of the Lord in 2 Chronicles 5. After the destruction of Solomon's temple in the 6th century BC, the Psalms eventually made their way into the synagogues and eventually into the early church. One might ask, if the Psalms played a role in Israelite temple worship, then why don't they play a greater role in modern temple worship? Doctors Hopkin explain, they write, Although temple practices do not include singing psalms today, besides temple dedications where music is common, the nature of instruction might be considered as similar to singing in many ways. One might ask, if the psalms played a role in Israelite temple worship, then why don't they play a greater role in modern temple worship? The doctors Hopkins explain, although temple practices do not include singing psalms today, besides temple dedications where music is common, the nature of instruction might be considered as similar to singing in many ways. The call and response used in the temple, the physical engagement of the body in the temple ordinances, and the prescribed orderly nature of these ritual behaviors all serve to mark the entrance into sacred space and time, with the actions marking the movement through the ritual stages of separation and aggregation. If Latter-day Saint worshipers were to envision the teaching, actions, and covenant-making of temple ordinances as a type of song of worship that allows them to return to the divine presence and engage in a divine conversation with God, their worship in the setting of the temple could only be enhanced. This was the ancient purpose of the Psalms, and it was the ancient purpose of temple worship as well. The purposes of the Psalms and of music is to create a sacred time and space and to bring the soul into communion with God. Understanding that the Psalms were sung and used anciently for this purpose of connection can increase the likelihood that those who participate can obtain the same goals now. Now we're going to look at question number three. How can I use the Psalms to draw closer to God? We have to remember that the Psalms were written by real people who reflected upon their relationship with God in the midst of real-life experiences. Psalm 57 was written by David as he was fleeing from Saul. Psalm 51 was written by David after being confronted with his sin with Bathsheba. And Psalm 3 was written by David when his own son, Absalom, was trying to kill him and take over the throne. Listen to the words of Psalm 3. A Psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. Lord, how are they increased that trouble me? Many are they that rise up against me. Many there be which say of my soul, there is no help from him in God. Selah, pause. But thou, O Lord, art a shield for me, my glory and the lifter up of mine head. I cried unto the Lord with my voice, and he heard me out of his holy hill. Selah. I laid me down and slept. I awakened, and the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people that have set themselves against me round about. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for thou hast smitten all mine enemies upon the cheek. Salvation belongeth unto the Lord. Thy blessing is upon thy people. Selah. 
even though he's running for his life, and even though people are telling him that God isn't going to answer him or help him, he still believed and he still had faith. The Psalms give us practical instructions as well. Look at Psalm 1. Let's look at the first three verses. Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the, God, uh, of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. And he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that bringeth forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. Notice the first verse, the progression there. He's walking not in the counsel of the ungodly. Or blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. We have an idea of progression. Once you start doing these things, once you start walking in the counsel of the God, ungodly, then you will stand in the way of sinners, and then you will sit in the seat of the scornful. The idea here is a, almost like a pig wallowing in sin. It's so easy for us to get entrapped in sin. When men are living in sin, they go from bad to worse. The Psalms also teach us about God's faithfulness and that we can and should trust the Lord. Look at Psalm 46. To the chief musician for the sons of Korah, talked about them, a song upon Alamoth, probably the tune in which the song was to be sung. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. Though the earth be removed, and though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea, though the waters thereof roar and be troubled, though the mountains shake with the swelling thereof, Selah, pause, stop, listen, think. There is a river, the streams whereof shall make glad the city of God, the holy place of the most of the tabernacles of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God shall help her, and that right early. The heathen raged. The kingdoms were moved. He uttered his voice. The earth melted. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Selah. Come, behold the works of the Lord. What desolations he hath made in the earth. He maketh wars to cease into the end of the earth. He breaketh the bow and cutteth the spear in sunder. He burneth the chariot in the fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the heathen. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Selah. God is faithful. We can trust him. Look at Psalm 27. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Whom, whom shall I be afraid? Does the hymn number 89, the Lord is my life, pop into your head when you hear these things? The Lord is my light. In this Psalm 27, David goes on to give a list of reasons why the Lord is to be trusted and the Lord is to be faithful. Verse 14, he ends with, wait on the Lord, be of good courage, and he shall strengthen thine heart. Wait, I see on the Lord. A psalm extolling the faithfulness of God. And yet, as we look at Psalm 28, we have God or David again crying out to God for relief and deliverance from his enemies. 
but yet with the confidence that he will be delivered. Kind of like us. One minute we're praising God and talking about how great God is and how wonderful he is and we should and he is. And then the next minute we're like, oh, Lord, please get me out of this mess that I'm in. David was in the same situation. David was human like we are. And he had the relationship that we have. One minute we're talking about how great he is. And the next minute we're saying, Lord, where are you? Help me. But God was always there. Have you ever had people talk about you or say things behind your back? Have you ever had your integrity questioned? Have you ever had bad rumors spread about you? So is David. Look at Psalm 26. Judge me, O Lord, for I have walked in mine integrity. I have also trusted in the Lord, therefore I shall not slide. Examine me, O Lord, and prove me. Try my reins and my heart, for thy loving kindness is before mine eyes, and I have walked in thy truth. I have not sat with vain persons, neither will I go with the dissemblers. I have hated the congregation of evildoers and will not sit with the wicked. And he goes on to talk about his justice and his righteousness. Lord, I have loved, verse 8, Lord, I have loved the habitation of thy house and the place where thine honor dwelleth. Gather not my soul with sinners, nor my life with bloody men. Verse 12, but as for me, I will walk in mine integrity. Redeem me and be merciful unto me. My foot standeth in an even place. In the congregations will I bless the Lord. This psalm also illustrates another way the psalms can help us draw closer to God. We can use them to pray. We can use them as tools to pray. When we're in a situation where we're going through difficult times, where people are talking about us, if you will, we can pray these words, pray the Psalms back to God, pray scripture, judge me. This, this could be a prayer of our heart to the Lord when we're going through a difficult situation. Many of the Psalms are prayers that David wrote out. And though we as Latter-day Saints typically don't recite prayers when we pray, there's nothing wrong with reciting scripture when we pray, especially in our personal prayer times with the Lord. The Psalms can also teach us about worship and the glory of God. Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament showeth his handiwork. Day unto day uttereth speech, and night unto night showeth knowledge. There is no speech nor language where the voice is not heard. Their line is gone out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them hath he set a tabernacle for the sun. And he describes the sun as a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, going forth from one end of heaven to the other end of heaven, and his circuit unto the ends of it and there is nothing hid from the heat thereof. We can look at Psalm 8. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth, who has set thy glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and sucklings hast thou ordained strength because of thine enemies, and thou mightest still the enemy and the avenger. You might recall that the Lord quoted this verse in Matthew chapter 21, verses 15 through 16, when he was having his triumphal entry on Palm Sunday, and the priests and the Levites were accusing him and asking him, why are you allowing the, these children to say these things about you? And he cites this verse as a fulfillment of prophecy. David goes on to say, when I consider thy heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars, which thou hast ordained, 
What is man that thou art mindful of him, and the son of man that thou visitest him? For thou hast made him a little lower than the angels, and hast crowned him with the glory and honor. Now, the word translated angels here in verse 5 is actually the name of our heavenly father, Elohim. We have been made just a little lower than Elohim and our Savior Jesus Christ while we were on this in our mortality. We're made in the image of God and destined to become like him if we are faithful to our covenants. He goes on, verse 6, Thou madest him to have dominion over the works of thy hands, meaning man. Thou hast put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, yea, and the beasts of the field, the fowl of the air and the fish of the sea, and whatsoever passeth through the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name. Think about God's creation and what it means to you. The beauty of the creation that we have, the beauty of the world that we live in. The be- we can find beauty in a desert. We can find beauty in a lush forest. And we can find beauty in a thunderstorm. And as we look at Psalm 29, it almost sounds as if David wrote this during a thunderstorm. Let's see. Look at verse 3. The voice, again, verse 3 of Psalm 29. The voice of the Lord is upon the waters. The glory, the God of glory thundereth. The Lord is upon many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord breaketh the cedars. Yea, the Lord breaketh the cedars of Lebanon. He makes them also to skip like a calf. Lebanon and Syrian like a young unicorn. The voice of the Lord divideth the flames of fires. The voice of the Lord shaketh the wilderness. The Lord shaketh the wilderness of Kadesh. And it talks about verse 10. The Lord sitteth upon the flood. Yea, the Lord sitteth king forever. The Lord will give strength unto his people. And the Lord will bless his people with peace. The idea of the Lord's word being, the Lord's voice being so strong and powerful. We find an echo of that in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, which reads, For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and it is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Again, Hebrews 4, 12. Another psalm that's a personal favorite of mine is Psalm 33. Rejoice in the Lord, O ye righteous, for praise is comely for the upright. Praise the Lord with harp. Sing unto him with psaltery and an instrument of ten strings. Sing unto him a new song. Play skillfully with a loud noise. Psalm 33, verse 3, gives me hope for sacrament meeting music someday when we can sing unto him a new song, nothing wrong with the old songs, but also to play skillfully with a loud noise. Wouldn't that be cool? Maybe not. No, no angry letters if you do disagree with me. This is just my personal take on that psalm. Another thing that the psalms teach us is we have to enter the Lord's presence. It requires purity. Psalm 24 is an ascent psalm. It's talking about who can ascend into the Lord's presence, basically. Who can go into the temple? Now, Charles H. Spurgeon was a Baptist preacher that lived in the 1800s in London, England. And he wrote a marvelous commentary on the book of Psalms. 
called the Treasury of David. It is in the public domain, and if you really want to get into the nitty-gritty of the Psalms, I encourage you to check it out. Now, Spurgeon was not LDS, so he does not always reflect our beliefs on everything, but as a whole, it is a great commentary on the book of Psalms. He believes that Psalm 24 was probably written to be sung when the Ark of the Covenant was taken up from the house of Obed-Eden to remain with, within the hill of Zion, when David is bringing the temple or bringing the Ark of the Covenant to the tabernacle where the temple would one day be built. He says, the words are not unsuitable for the sacred dance of joy in which David led the way upon that joyful occasion. Doctors Hopkins argued that this song was meant to be sung responsibly or antiphonally. They write, quote, Psalm 24 functions in a similar way, where the worshiper or the priest asks, who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord? And the worshiper then responds, he that hath clean hands and a pure heart. Some Latter-day Saints consider this format to be similar to the temple recommend questions, demonstrating that there were worthiness requirements in order to enter into the temple. Whether or not this is a valid connection, the call and response format of the Psalms would have caused thoughtful reflection among temple worshipers and helped lift their souls to higher levels of devotion. Listen to these words, beginning in verse 3 of Psalm 24. Who shall ascend unto the hill of the Lord, or who shall stand in his holy place? He that hath clean hands and a pure heart, who hath not lifted up his soul unto vanity, nor sworn deceitfully. Lift up your heads, O ye gates, and be ye lift up, ye everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory, the Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle? Lift up your heads, O ye gates, even lift them up, ye everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory, Selah. Now let's look at the question that David begins here. Who shall ascend unto the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? He that hath clean hands and a pure heart, who hath not lifted up his soul unto vanity, nor sworn deceitfully. Elder David Bednar, in his talk given during the October 2007 General Conference, the talk is entitled, Clean Hands and a Pure Heart. He says the following, quote, Repenting and coming unto Christ through the covenants and ordinances of salvation are prerequisite to and a preparation for being sanctified by the reception of the Holy Ghost and standing spotless before God at the last day. Please notice that both clean hands and a pure heart are required to ascend into the hill of the Lord and to stand into this holy place. Elder Budnar continues, let me suggest that hands are made clean through the process of putting off the natural man and by overcoming sin and the evil influences in our lives. Through the Savior's atonement, hearts are purified as receive his strengthening power to do and become better. All of our worthy desires and good works, as necessary as they are, can never produce clean hands and a pure heart. It is the atonement of Jesus Christ that provides both a cleansing and redeeming power that helps us to overcome sin and a sanctifying and strengthening power that helps us to become better than we ever could be, relying only upon our own strength. The infinite atonement is for both the sinner and for the saint in each of us. 
And we are also reminded of the story of King Benjamin when he gives his speech. At the end of the speech, the crowd responds, quote, and they all cried aloud with one voice saying, oh, have mercy and apply the atoning blood of Christ that we might receive the forgiveness of our sins and our hearts may be purified. For we believe in Jesus Christ, the son of God, who created heaven and earth and all things who shall come down among the children of men, end quote. And of course, that is Mosiah 4.2. Now we're going to look at our fourth key question, and that is, what do the Psalms teach me about Christ? We're going to start by looking at some of the Psalms that were quoted by the apostles in the New Testament. For instance, Psalm chapter 2, or the second Psalm rather, verses 1 through 3, was quoted by Peter and John in Acts 4, 24 through 28. Quote, and when they heard that, they lifted up their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, thou art God, which has made heaven and earth and the sea and all that in them is. Who by the mouth of thy servant David has said, why did the heathen rage and the people imagine vain things? The kings of the earth stood up and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For of a truth against thy holy child Jesus, whom thou hast anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together. For to do whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel determined to be done, determined before to be done. Psalm 2, verse 7, was quoted by Paul and Barnabas while preaching in a synagogue in Antioch in Acts 13, verses 32-33. And we declare unto you glad tidings, how that the promise which was made unto the fathers, God hath fulfilled the same unto us, their children, in that he hath raised up Jesus again, as it is also written in the second psalm, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. Psalm 31.5, Into thine hand I commit my spirit, is quoted by the Savior in, in Luke 23, verse 46. Psalm 34.20 says that no bones of the Messiah will be broken. Psalm 41.9 mentions a betrayal, that the Messiah will be betrayed by a friend. And there are other examples. There's a great article online at BYU Studies entitled, My God, My God, Why Hast Thou Forsaken Me? It is an in-depth look at Psalm 22 and the mission of Christ. It is also by Dr. Sean Hopkins. It does a great job in going into detail Psalm 22, which is probably the most, the psalm that has the most references to the Messiah and to the atonement than any other psalm, and maybe even any other scripture, perhaps second only to Isaiah 53. We're going to use some of his thoughts and ideas as we look at this Psalm 22. Now, David wrote this psalm about his own experiences, but the words he uses to describe the, what the Messiah would experience can only be understood as inspired by the Holy Spirit. Psalm 22 begins by saying, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And of course, we recognize those phrase, that phrase being spoken of by Jesus on the cross. Why, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why did Jesus feel forsaken at this moment? We really don't know. Scholars debate. 
It could be that the full weight of sin had been placed finally upon his shoulders and that the Lord could no longer bear it. Or any other number of reasons. We really don't know. But we can relate to what Jesus must have felt. And we can relate to the tragedy because this was probably the only time in in the history of time where God the Father and God the Son experienced this profound separation. It must have truly been really difficult for Jesus to go through that and really difficult for the Father to go through that as well. The psalm goes on to say, verse 6, But I am a worm and no man a reproach of men and disguised of thy people. All they that see me laugh me to scorn. They shoot out the lip, they shake the head, saying he trusted on the Lord that he would deliver him. Let him deliver him, seeing he delighted in him. Of course, we see echoes of the psalm in the reaction to the crowd in Luke chapter 23, where he's saying he saved others, let him save himself. If he be the Christ, the chosen of God. While Jesus was hanging on the cross, people were mocking him, saying, if you're really from God, why won't God deliver you? That psalm, that scene was predicted in the psalm. Dr. Hopkins writes that the psalmist described Christ as a worm and no man may have a significant dual meaning. In one sense, Christ, who, quote, descended below all things, unquote, was considered as less than any other human being having become in a manner guilty of the darkest sins of all humankind through his atoning sacrifice. He was treated as the lowest of creatures, as a worm, and was crucified on the cross like the vilest of sinners, end quote. Verse 14 of Psalm 22 says, I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted in the midst of my bowels. This is a perfect description of the crucifixion where the person is stretched out on the cross. Oftentimes what would happen is they would be laid down. They would be on the ground and they would be laid on top of the cross and stretched out. And the cross would be jolted into the ground. And when that happened, the whole body jolted and your joints were pulled uh, out of to their sockets, and your ligaments were stretched to the very uh, breaking point. It was incredibly painful. The whole crucifixion was an incredibly painful experience. And this verse really describes how he his bones are out of joint and his heart was like wax. Of course, uh, later on, after Jesus died, the soldier takes the spear and puts thrusts it up into his chest, his rib cage, and the blood and water flow. Verse 22, Jesus says, my strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue cleaveth to my jaws, and thou hast brought me into the dust of death. Dr. Hopkins writes, There's, there is no better poetic imagery for the extreme thirst than a potsherd, a broken piece of pottery. In those days, everyday pottery was not glazed. Therefore, if a drop of water was put on a broken piece of unglazed pottery, the drop would be soaked up almost instantly. Severe dehydration also causes the mouth to become dry and the tongue to swell up so that it cleaveth to the jaws. And by this time, the Savior was incredibly dehydrated. Think about the events that transpired in the last 24 hours. Blood, sweat like blood, bleeding through his sweat at Gethsemane, being being 
scourged by the Roman cohort there. That alone would have cost a tremendous amount of blood. A lot of people didn't even survive the scourging. And a tremendous loss of blood would have also led to dehydration. And so all that was going on. And we do know that Jesus did ask for a drink while he was on the cross. And all four Gospels report that Jesus was given something to drink on a sponge. And John seems to report it as a fulfillment of prophecy. John 19, 28, he says, after this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, saith, I thirst. Back to Psalm 22, look at verse 16. For dogs have compassed me, the assembly of the wicked have enclosed me. They pierced my hands and feet. Again, an indication of the manner of death the Messiah would die, crucifixion. And this was written a thousand years before the Phoenicians ever invented crucifixion. They were the ones that invented it, and Rome took it and made it into a brutal art form of execution. Verse 17 I may tell all my bones, they look and stare upon me. Again, no bones were broken. Verse 18, they part my garments among them and cast lots upon my vexture. All four Gospels talk about this robe that Jesus had, this garment that he had that was made out of one piece. It would have been very expensive. They didn't want to tear it up. So the soldiers cast lots for to see who would win this garment. This was fulfillment of prophecy. David describes in vivid detail the experience of Jesus Christ on the cross. The death and resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ was the apex of a plan laid before the foundation of the world. As we read the Psalms, we see how much our Heavenly Father and our Savior Jesus Christ love us. We learn how he is faithful and absolutely worthy of our worship and trust. In his willingness to lay down his life for us, we can also see that Jesus really is our good shepherd. And therefore, we will conclude this study by looking at the most famous psalm of all, the shepherd's psalm, also known as the 23rd psalm. Psalm 23, David declares, the Lord is my shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Whenever I hear this verse, I almost immediately think about the words of the Savior in John chapter 10, where he says the following, Verily, verily, I say unto you, I am the door of the sheep. All that ever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. By me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved and shall go in and out and find pasture. The thief cometh not but for to steal and to kill, and to destroy. I am come that they may have life, and they might have it more abundantly. I am the good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. But he that is a hireling and not the shepherd, whose own the the sheep are not, when he sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep, and fleeth, and the wolf catcheth them, and scattereth the sheep. The hiring fleeth because he is a hireling and careth not for the sheep. I am the good shepherd, and I know my sheep and am known of mine. As the Father knoweth me, even so how I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep, and other sheep I have, which are not of this fold. Them also I must bring, and they shall hear my voice, and there shall be one fold and one shepherd. Again, those verses are from the Gospel of John, chapter 10. Now, shepherds 
were some of the lowest members of society. They were the entry-level position. You remember David started out as a shepherd. He was the one when all his brothers went off to fight the Philistines, he stayed home and watched the sheep, but he gained valuable experience. You'll remember it was shepherds that were some of the first witnesses to the birth of Christ. Shepherds weren't always trustworthy. Shepherds hung around sheep, and they didn't smell the greatest, and they had all these issues. But Jesus identifies with the shepherd as someone that loved and truly cared for his flock. Verse 2, he maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. The shepherd makes his sheep lay down. A sheep will only lie down if it is free from stress. No fear, no hunger, nor pests. Ezekiel 34, 15 through 16 echoes this language when he says, I will feed my flock and I will cause them to lie down, saith the Lord God. I will seek that which was lost and bring again that which was driven away and will bind up that which was broken and will strengthen that which was sick. Sometimes we get to going and moving and living life and all its hectic chaoticness. Sometimes the Lord has to make us lie down. Sometimes he does it by causing something to happen where we literally have to lie down. Other times he just speaks and whispers to us that it's time to take a break. And if we are mindful of the Lord's words, we will obey and lay down. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. Anyone that's manicured a yard knows that green pastures don't just happen. For a pasture to be green, they had to clear brush and rocks, maybe water the lawn, some irrigation, fertilizing we might do nowadays. They probably didn't do that back then. The, The sheep did the fertilizing for them. There was effort on the part of the shepherd to make sure that the sheep was safe and secure. He leadeth me beside the still waters run deep. There was no risk of a sheep getting caught up in a swift current. And the idea also implies that there were no predators in the area because the waters were still. It was a safe space for the sheep to be in. Verse 3, he restoreth my soul. He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Have you ever watched a sheep being sheared of a heavy fleece? They don't really appreciate the shearing, but afterwards they seem relieved, if not somewhat happy, to have that burden taken from them. Sometimes the Lord has to hold us down and shear us occasionally. Not a pleasant experience, but oh, the relief once it's done, the restoration we feel, the peace we must have. Sheep are known to be creatures of habit. If left to themselves, they will wear down the same spaces over and over again. It's up to the shepherd to lead them down new spaces and to find new places for them to graze. So they are spared from unnecessary disease and parasites. And notice it says, he leads me. We aren't just following a bunch of rules when we obey the commandments. We're following Christ. If any man be my disciple, let him come after me. You show your love for me by keeping my commandments, the Savior said. So it's so easy in our church to get bogged down in following the rules. But we should always remember, we're not just trying to follow the rules. We're trying to follow Christ. And he leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. The shepherds gained reputation on the, based upon the health and safety and the flourishing of their flocks. Jesus is going to keep us safe 
for his name's sake. Not to say that there's not going to be troubles and difficulties and so forth, but he will preserve you through mortality because he said so. When you covenant to follow him, he will keep his covenants with you for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Between the mountaintop pastures in Judea, there were very deep valleys. These valleys contained thieves and predators, but the Lord led them, the Savior, the shepherd led them through these difficult times, even the very shadow of death. It says, thy rod and thy staff, thy comfort me. The rod was made out of a basically a sapling, and it was basically used as a club for protection. The rod was also used for discipline. If a sheep went too far, the shepherd would throw it in front of the sheep, and the sheep would stop and turn around. The shepherd's staff was a long, slender stick, often with a crook or hook on one end. It was used for guiding the sheep and pulling them back. So the shepherd's tools were for the sheep's protection and for the sheep's own discipline. Indeed, our Heavenly Father has tools like that as well. Sometimes we don't enjoy being handled by those tools of protection and discipline, but they are always for our best in the end. Now David transitions from talking about God He actually, in verse 4, he transitions from talking about God to talking to him. Verse 5, thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil, my cup runneth over. A table could refer to a table land or a high plateau, a clear pasture. Uh, Or it could be David taking things personally about a table being prepared before his enemies, the anointing of a king, the celebration of a kingship in spite of and in front of his enemies, something David experienced when he was anointed king of Israel. Uh, The anointing of my head, a lot of times sheep were treated with an oil to keep parasites off them, or it could be referring to the ordination of David as a king. Oil was often used for medicinal purposes, and as well as in the anointing of priests and kings. You remember in the parable, the Good Samaritan poured oil into the wounds of the wounded man. Also, that verse talks about my cup running over. What does that mean? Remember what Luke said in, or what the Savior said in Luke chapter six, verse thirty-eight: "Give, and it shall be given unto you. Good measure, pressed down and shaken together, and running over, shall men give in your bosom. For with the same measure that ye meet withal, it shall be measured to you again." The blessings that the Lord has in store for us will cause our cup to runneth over. The size of our cup depends upon us and what we do. And then the, the, the psalm concludes with surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Goodness and mercy shall follow him all the days of his life, both good days and bad days. And indeed, our Savior will be with us through all the good and the bad, from the tables and the green pastures 
to the valley of the shadow of death. I bear you my testimony that I know our Savior lives, that he loves us, that he died for us, that he rose again from the dead. And if we place our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, we can have an eternal relationship with him and that we too will know the faithfulness and dependability of God the same way that David did. And I say this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.